kneel before Zor. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Paternity, released October 2nd, 1981. It was written by Charlie Peters, directed by David Steinberg, and released by Paramount Pictures. The working title of the film was From Here to Paternity. The part of the female lead was considered for Reynolds' recent ex, Sally Field, and even Natalie Wood, but the part eventually landed with Beverly D'Angelo. When this production was disrupted by Cannonball Run going over schedule, Paramount threatened to sue Fox, but instead, Cannonball Run agreed to shut down long enough for Reynolds to reshoot the ending of Paramount's 1980 release, Rough Cut, and then push back the paternity shooting schedule on their own, which I think we discussed when we were doing the Cannonball Run review. Yeah. The film opens with establishing shots of the New York City skyline. Buddy Evans, as played by Burt Reynolds, steps out of his building and is greeted warmly by his doorman. He sees a woman on a corner who catches his eye, but when she turns around wearing a mask, he loses interest because he's apparently an anti-vaxxer of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, this is not, this is no longer alarming, but yeah. the next thing he does is alarming now. <laughs> yeah. But I think... Uh, She's credited as woman in flu mask on the credits, so that's what the implication is supposed to be for what she's doing here. Yeah. Buddy buys a newspaper and continues his walk to work under the Razzie-winning worst song of the year. Papa says da-da, baby says da-da too. Mama goes ga-ga, baby goes goo-goo-goo. Buddy pretends to be a crossing guard to help a teacher and a line of students cross the street. In Central Park, he entertains a child by sharing food with the kid and feeding squirrels until the song is rudely interrupted when he throws a crumb into the street for the squirrel and it gets hit by a car. <laughs> but like, who would let their child randomly take food from that a stranger has been eating off mm. of in the park and this guy is weird with kids in this movie it, yeah. he is weird yeah. he's like, very strange and i would be just as disturbed by a woman doing what he's doing in all these scenes as i am by him doing it yeah. it's not oh, it's yeah, not yeah. a sexism thing where no, i'm no, like no. guys can't be with kids what what's the problem it's like no he's literally just These walking up and feeding people's kids children. without asking them yes. he's following like kids on a school he just, trip yeah he's just wandering around with a class full of children for no reason he doesn't know any of the kids in the class he's very weird about kids <laughs> this this is but this was the filmmaker's attempt to show he's good with children right yeah. and all it shows me is that <laughs> these this filmmakers is very problematic don't understand and weird. children yeah. <laughs> All the nearby parents collect their children and leave Buddy alone on the park bench after their children see a squirrel flattened. Which is what they should have done when he was force feeding a little yeah. girl a piece of his candy bar or breakfast bar or whatever he had. But I mean, what is their alternative to sit here and just look at the flattened squirrel for the rest of the afternoon? I think the parents probably wanted to leave too. The screen fills with baby pictures and we start to hear them cooing and then crying. No, we need to talk about these opening credits. I'm assuming these are production babies or not not production babies, but the children of the people yeah. who work on the film. Or, yeah. yeah, they they must be because they're not, they wouldn't be old enough images to be the people who worked on the film. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're not black and white. But also, you know, you're not going to license, you know, a hundred 
baby photos all I mean, of a maybe sudden. you are because it's like, who's going to know? Yeah. I'll just go to a nearby hospital and take every baby picture. But uh, I had to turn the volume down. Because of the crying? Because the crying, it, like, because it's just showing a few pictures and then you're hearing a little bit of crying, but then it starts showing like dozens of pictures at once and you're hearing it overlapped and overlaid. And it started just like freaking me out. <laughs> As like, you know, you know, I don't have kids and I and I have never really been around a lot of babies, but hearing all of those combined cries was like triggering like evolutionary things in my brain. Like <laughs> it's like this isn't okay. Something is wrong. Fix it. Someone help those babies. <laughs> uh I, I turned the volume down. If I was in the theater, I would have walked out. Yeah, this was like we said that a couple times though about different moments in yeah. these films. But but like it's like no, I'm not I'm not going to hear this. Yeah, I'm not going to the theater. I'm going to the theater to have a good time, not not to just hear troubling noises played yeah. in Dolby surround. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Um, I think it was Witch's Brew where an alarm goes off and it just keeps going off for like 45 seconds, and we were like, I would not have seen the end of this movie if it weren't for this podcast. <laughs> I would not have sat through this for much longer than I did. We cut back to Buddy, now walking with a co-worker, Kurt, played by Paul Dooley. I guess it's his attorney, but they're going yeah. to the same place. A sign above Madison Square Garden's marquee announces Buddy's 44th birthday, and he demands it be taken down. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a billboard in New York City dedicated to the lead character of the film? Uh... They walked him downtown, and they pointed out the billboard, and he's like, Oh my gosh, that's so nice of you guys. It was in Central Park. Big billboard. Tribute. Uh... That's what the sign said. Oh. And it was for that show that they were doing. Because it was a tribute. We'll learn that Buddy works as an events manager here at Madison Square Garden, which was owned at the time by Paramount's parent company, Gulf and Western. As they walk through the garden, people ask Buddy about the betting odds on upcoming sport events. His chat with Kurt is about mortality and about having a family to leave behind when you're gone. Kurt's son is actually here in the office today, played by Peter Billingsley. Remember me? I live with your mother. Dad, right? Inside the office, Buddy and a table of executives screen a recent hockey game broadcast. Buddy cuts the meeting short and changes into a tracksuit to walk Kurt's kid, Tad, down to the garden's basketball courts. That's, that's your important thing that you had to do today? Yeah. That's, that's why the kid is here, is to go play basketball with his dad's co-worker, not his dad? Yeah. In the Madison Square Garden court? Who they repeatedly make jokes about throughout the movie about like not caring about his dad. It's like your dad just got you this cool thing where you got to play basketball at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. But also, I mean, I really don't, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to make the, the meeting seem like it's just some kind of futile, not futility, but like it's... It's, it's not it, a big deal. It's not a big deal. Or it's also, you don't know really what they're talking about. You just know that they're doing business. Yeah. And they seem annoyed that they're having to do this meeting with his attorney and not with him. Yeah. Because Dooley is just like, oh yeah, he he agrees with me. This is how yeah. it should look. And they're like, well, we wanted his opinion on this. But, but also, I was like, if he's an events manager, why are they watching previously recorded footage? I think because they're talking about changes that they want to make to how they do things in the future. Oh. But it's, yeah, it's so far out of the point of the film yeah. that I don't even know why we bothered with it. We could just as easily have been like, oh, hey, it's Tad. Let's go play basketball. It didn't, there didn't need to be a meeting going on that he was neglecting. The kid tells Buddy about a teacher that had a heart attack at the age of 43 and died. So he's not excited about being 44 today. 
Later, Buddy sits down to a meal when a singing telegram shows up to improvise a song wishing him a happy birthday. You'd think a singing telegram service would have a birthday song at the ready, but he's clearly making it up <laughs> as he goes along. It's pretty rough improvising. Yeah. yeah. It's your birthday today, and everybody here's got to say, hey, cause it's your birthday today. So make a wish, blow out the candles, have a big piece of cake, cause you don't have any love handles. It's your birthday today, and everybody Everybody here has got to say, hey, it's your birthday today. Also, another point where I may have walked out of the theater because yeah. this is also going on for way you too You know long. who this is, right, though? Uh, do I? <laughs> the singing telegram. It's Murph from the Murph Tones. Oh, God. <laughs> but he's like crab walking on the ground yeah, and following and, and, around. The, the, all the motion, I, I'm convinced, is, is equally improvised. He's making up the words as he goes along, and he's doing a little dance that he just thought up on set. They didn't give him anything because they wanted it to be as irritating as possible. They succeeded. <laughs> Kurt and another friend, Larry, who is who we'll learn later is actually Buddy's doctor, uh, played by Norman Fell, are outside laughing at the scene that they've caused. We get a few useless rapid-fire cutaways, and then the three friends are sitting at a restaurant table together talking about how Buddy's life seems unfulfilled. But worth going back to these cutaways, one shot is just he is talking to a kid again somewhere, and then the next shot is he's at a restaurant, and he fills his glass with wine, and he drinks it, and then he pretends it's gross and asks for a refill. It's like, these don't inform anything. Why did we do that? Why couldn't the friends just come into the restaurant and sit down with him after that moment? I, I, I did kind of chuckle at the gagging on the wine. And then asking for more. Yeah, because it, it almost looked like he actually swallowed down the wrong pipe for a second. Yeah. <laughs> he was having trouble and just kept going with it. Yeah, so they just put a blooper in, you're saying? <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo shows up to take their orders, and we cut to Buddy hanging out with an elementary school class on a field trip in Central Park. It's honestly disturbing how much time this single male spends just hanging out with strangers' children. Buddy overhears the guide explain that emu mothers don't raise the babies. They lay the eggs and then daddy takes over and it gives him an idea. Now, does anyone know what we call a kind of mummy that just produces offspring and leaves them for someone else to raise? I call lucky and smart. We call that mother a surrogate mother. That little girl's already like, my mother hates me. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> I was like, wait, are, are we supposed to be gathering this information about these two girls that are talking about how lucky it is that they don't have to raise kids like because they're old enough to understand that they would have to raise kids or and that that, would suck or (laughs) or or that their parents despise them yeah at home that night buddy tells his housekeeper celia about his plans to find a surrogate to have his baby and then raise it himself like the emu say what that's a bird and the male raises the offspring. Celia reminds him that he is an impossible perfectionist, but he can't even keep houseplants alive. He tells his friends about the surrogate plan, and they tell him that they will help him find the right woman. Also, I think it's very strange that his friends are his doctor and his lawyer, because they're both much older than he is. So I think the like... point is that he can't maintain friendships, okay. so he can only do it with people he has a professional relationship pays. with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because it's like, like they're not childhood friends, or they're not college friends. But they both seem like decent people throughout the film. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. They, they are very friendly with him, and, and they are... Uh, they, they care about his best interests. Yeah. 
They ask their waitress if she could fathom having someone else's child and not raising it, and the idea doesn't seem totally crazy to her. Again, this is Beverly D'Angelo showing up to answer their questions. Outside, we see the same waitress, Maggie, walking home when her roommate, Kathy, played by Linda Gillen, spots her from a balcony and calls down about a letter she received from France. She's been accepted into a study program in Paris, and Kathy tells some people standing nearby that her friend will be studying with Devereaux which from my cursory research I thought was a reference to Hungarian-French ethnologist George Devereaux, who passed away four years later in 1985. But then Kathy says he's the best brass teacher in the world, so maybe it's a fictional musician or just yeah. someone I, I couldn't find. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I can't remember when this happens, but Burt Reynolds is going over the qualifications for the, the woman that he would need. Yeah. And, and one of them, he says, oh, and Celia said she should have healthy breasts. And Paul Dooley's response is, I agree with Celia. (laughs) (laughs) Maggie claims she can't afford the program and runs inside where she has a student waiting. Buddy brings a bouquet of flowers into a butcher shop, and the butcher makes him throw on a bloody apron before he can go in the back room to see someone. While he tries to speak with ex-girlfriend Diane Casabello, another butcher chops the heads off his flowers, and he takes a second to notice. He pitches her on the surrogate program, and she reminds him that he could be with anyone, and why waste his time with her, pausing occasionally to cough all over the meat she is working with. She starts yanking organs out of an animal on the slab while he lists the reasons he considered her. I mean, you're gentle, and you're sensitive, and you're the most vulnerable person. God, that's disgusting. Buddy, I'm sorry. She turns down the offer, and it's off to the next candidate. We see a muted date with a girl named Connie, who laughs off the suggestion, and we cut to Emily. Emily's date is also muted, and we see her from a distance as she immediately takes an umbrella away from Buddy to turn and walk the opposite direction after she hears the proposal. The next prospect is named Veronica, but she shows up and she's wearing a nun's habit. Buddy has two more scheduled visits for tonight. He pitches the name Quimby to his lawyer friend Kurt, who hangs up on him. Mrs. Werner is sent in, and he asks what she thinks of Quimby. Quimby sucks. Buddy is bothered that she doesn't like Quimby and that she's wearing braces. They take turns insulting each other's appearance back and forth until she leaves crying. On the way out, she passes interior decorator Jenny Lofton, played by Lauren Hutton. Hutton is sent into the office and Buddy confuses her for a surrogate candidate. When he asks to see her breasts, she is understandably confused. What? What's without any sexual stimulation? No emotion. We're talking about tools of the trade. When you look at my... (laughs) I I want to be completely open about this. When you look at my genitals, you're not looking at my genitals. Think of them as a potato peeler. She runs for it. Maybe not a potato peeler. He tries to chase her but loses her at the closing elevator doors. Buddy and Maggie are suddenly sharing a cab, but the driver follows Buddy's instructions. And, And why is he chasing her? Because he thinks she's extremely attractive. She's a good candidate. Doesn't want to lose out on this one. But he but, never realizes yeah. that she was not a candidate in the first yeah, place. Yeah, right. Well, and when she gets she gets away in a cab and she drives off before he even gets down to the lobby. And then he gets into a cab and says, follow that cab as Maggie gets in. Right. Which, first of all, is like, well, why is Maggie here at Madison Square Garden all of a sudden? Like, coincidence yeah yeah i was like okay but also th- there's no way that cab is still in sight at this point yeah i think it's a little weird and i think the implication also here is that the cabbie finds burt reynolds attractive 
And so he decides he's going to take Burt Reynolds' requests and yeah. not hers. The driver is very slow, though, and it's annoying, buddy. Miss Lofton hops out of her car and then comes to an outing of the International Ladies' Garments Workers' Union on a pier. She arrives in time to see her aunt, Ethel Lofton, receive an award for lifetime service. What a weirdly convoluted side story yep. that we get a first and last name for this aunt character receiving an award for Lauren Hutton, who is like a name actress mm-hmm. and who disappears after this scene yeah. and does Very not come weird. back to the story. Yeah, she, she, she stands still for the ceremony and then goes up to meet her aunt and says, There's a there, crazy man chasing there, me. Which, who hasn't even arrived at the scene yet. Right. And and she would not know he was chasing her because she got in a cab and drove away before he even exited the building. Right. She would not have seen him get into a cab. I mean, she heard him stepping toward her in the elevator, but she wouldn't have presumed from that that he, yeah, left that the he got in a got cab in and a cab, followed yeah. her all yeah. the way here. The group all board a boat together for a day trip, and Buddy accidentally grabs something of Maggie's from the cab, so she's forced to follow him to the boat too. But Jenny notices them on the boat in time to get off of it before it pulls away. At the back of the boat, Buddy explains his whole situation, and Maggie seems to totally understand, and even conveniently throws in that she'd like to have a kid, but that she's not interested in marriage or raising a child. The boat captain points out every hospital they float past to announce the procedures that he had there and to rate each experience. <laughs> and just com- completely uh, craps on any New Jersey, Jersey facility. Yeah. facilities. I feel like this whole, obviously this whole scenario was because somehow they booked a boat. It's right, like, we got we got to use the boat. Like yeah. we got We had to figure out some way to use this boat because otherwise, this whole conversation, it could have been he gets into the cab to try to follow the cab. The cab driver loses loses them, and he promised to take her where she was going. And they have this conversation in the cab. Yeah, it's it's such it's such a lot of information and set design to include a random meeting of the of the international women's garments union yeah. it's like why are you bothering with all, all of that in all, this boat yeah all of these extras all all of this time on the pier which is like all these different permits you got to pull unless this was all part of filming in new york like it's like you have to do you have to do something at the pier you have to do something on the water you know we have we got to show the waterfront it, like yeah you really have to like give us a tour of the city Before the boat docks again, Buddy has already come to an agreement with Maggie and even made her a cash offer to have his child. The price mentioned is $50,000, or the equivalent of $163,757 in 2022. The next day, they meet again in Buddy's office to sign an official contract. They want to know specifically how many traditional impregnation attempts they're agreeing to before signing anything. Which, isn't this kind of like paying for sex a little bit? Yes. (laughs) Because they're not talking about doing it the newfangled scientific way they're talking about literally just i'm going to have sex with you and i'm going to pay this much money to do it like for all she knows he has a vasectomy and he's literally just paying for sex with a stranger i feel like he could probably pay somebody less yeah but if the person doesn't want to be a prostitute then you pretend oh you're going to be a surrogate mother and it's very sweet of you to do that seems like a lot of money just to force somebody to be a prostitute people have paid more for less and it seems like if you're doing this because surrogate mothers aren't a thing they are a thing yeah um you but it's usually done in a clinical manner right like like an insemination not not yeah. not like copulating yeah exactly or like a turkey baster maneuver <laughs> it's a thing people do at home later buddy reads up on a lot of old wives tales to force the sex of the baby because he intends to have a son not only are his plants dying but buddy's fish also seem to be dying hello my little babies hello my little 
DB. When Maggie meets with Buddy for the first attempt, he has whale sounds pumped into a speaker system by the bed because it supposedly increases the chances of conception. <laughs> increases? <laughs> Damn it. I was <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite spit take in any movie is Lebowski choking on his uh, white Russian. It increases the chances of conception. They start cuddling standing up, which Buddy Red will cause boys, and Maggie stares over his shoulder at the fish tank. Mm. It's just lying there. Well, give me a minute. I think it's dead. Well, I know it's not dancing, but you know it's not dead. Oh no, your fish. My fish? No, your fish in the tank. I think that fish is dead. Oh my. God, it's my koi. We're all the way over from Hawaii. You'd have to be over a hundred years old. <laughs> <laughs> I like how much he cares about these fish, actually. And even the plants in his apartment, it's cute. It's less disturbing than how much he cares about other people's children for some reason. Maggie worries their approach is too clinical and decides to share a fantasy of hers, but Buddy interrupts hers with his own. She decides to reenact his fantasy by getting all dressed up and acting it out in public. He finds her at a hotel restaurant with a fake beauty mark above her lip. Men at a nearby table try to hit on her, and she blows them off. But when Buddy shows up, they recite the lines from his fantasy. You're supposed to say, would you like a drink? Would you like a drink? No. Drink is not what I want. What is that? A mole? Beauty mark. Oh, I like that. What do you want? I want you. Now. Would you like to make a baby? The room number's on the key. The men from the nearby table are stunned to silence. Buddy and Maggie meet in the upstairs room and begin to undress each other. The next morning she wakes up alone in bed and Buddy is sleeping on the hotel room couch. Later, Maggie meets with Buddy's doctor friend Larry and they discuss how to share the good news with Buddy. Of course, when Buddy busts in, he's already guessed the good news. Tell me it worked! Tell me it worked! What do you mean it worked? Look at that rosy cheek. Look at that glow in your face. It worked, huh? Tell me it worked. Maggie's pregnant. Ha! Damn, the rabbit died! I knew it! I knew it! The rabbit died! Do you guys recall the last rabbit death? Oh, gosh. I, I, I know that we've discussed it several times. Multiple times. The most recent one? Yeah, I'm just going to do the most recent. We don't have to go through all of them. <laughs> um, I think it was Ellen Burstyn. You're surprised. <laughs> I insisted upon visiting the dead rabbit's grave. <laughs> <laughs> Miracle hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's too far back. Same time next That's year. That's the name of the movie. Uh, same time next year. Remember the pregnancy reveal? Oh, yeah. I remember that now. <laughs> Over dinner, Buddy picks on Maggie's meal, so Celia pretends to smell gas at the stove to lure him away from the table so she can eat whatever the fuck she wants. But it doesn't work, so... I mean, it kind of works because even though he knows that it's not a gas oven, he goes to check on it, but she doesn't take advantage of the opportunity. She pretends yeah. like, oh, I was just cutting up your meat, and it's like, you should have just put that whole thing in your mouth. It's not going to grab it out of your throat. 
The next day, Buddy accompanies Maggie for a jog, but he's on a motorbike. He tells her about fetal osmosis, the theory that an infant experiences everything the mother does. Great. You have the only baby ever born with shin splints. Buddy visits her at home, where she's learning French on an exercise bike, presumably because with her surrogacy payment, she'll be able to afford that program in Paris. Buddy gives her a vitamin beverage to keep the baby healthy and compliments the vibrant plants in her home. I give mine vitamins. And plant food. Every day. From Central America. Sometimes I think it's better just to water them and leave them alone. Back at Madison Square Garden, Buddy watches men erecting a boxing ring and spots an ex, Sophia Thatcher, played by Elizabeth Ashley. Turns out she is married and divorced since they split. We cut to Lama's classes where Maggie is annoyed she's been given a girl doll to practice with since she thinks it will affect the sex of the child she is producing, but the instructor assures her it makes no difference. Even when she swaps it for a boy, though, Maggie is very careless with her doll and seems disturbed by the instructor's assurances that many of them will experience stretch marks. When she gets back home, she finds Buddy entertaining Sophia in the apartment and is hurt. She turns on the whale sounds to annoy them. The next day, we see all the major characters sitting around a baseball game, cheering for someone named Jerry. And the coach says he's putting Maggie in the game, but Buddy thinks he deserves another turn instead. You're 0 for 4. I'm due. (laughs) (laughs) I was really worried this was going to be a much darker scene than it is because she's visibly pregnant now and isn't paying attention to when a pitch is being thrown to her. She manages to get a piece of a pitch and sends the ball into the next field. Buddy tries to talk her into accepting a single base, but she runs all the way home and everyone celebrates except for Buddy. Later, they are walking by a falafel stand, and again, Buddy denies her the food she wants. Please. No. I tell you what, I'll give you each two falafel, everybody will be happy. Here's one for you. I'll get your license taken away. I don't have a license. He doesn't have a license. Don't eat that thing. He doesn't have a license. This all stems from the need to rebel against authority. Very common. What are you, a falafel therapist? He's right. I I've thought it might have been funnier if he was like a falafelcifer, <laughs> but it doesn't make as much sense as therapist, considering what he said. Later, they walk more, and Buddy says that he wanted to play sports, but his dad wanted him to be a lawyer. He doesn't care what his future son does as long as he's happy. He talks about how much he loves interacting with kids and thinks he could outdo his father. That night, Maggie stops by to remind him that tomorrow, at 8 p.m., at the prenatal clinic has been dubbed Father's Night, and he's expected to attend. He claims he'll remember, and she asks why he's watching Mr. Rogers. Because he likes me just the way I am. The next day, Maggie has to drag Larry to the clinic because Buddy forgot. We cut to Buddy entertaining a woman in his office by speaking through the announcer microphone of the garden, but then he gets a glimpse of his daily planner and realizes he forgot about the clinic tonight. He arrives to the room late and calls repeatedly to Maggie as he sneaks through a breathing exercise in a dimly lit room. The instructor is annoyed at the intrusion. Sir, we have a very delicate atmosphere in here. Well, just pretend I'm not here. The class is waiting, sir. Buddy's date then shows up to the same room looking for him and demanding food. Unfortunately, she finds him in the room, and Larry is enlisted to take the girl home. Suddenly, another soon-to-be mother in the room recognizes the name Buddy and admits to her husband that Buddy is an ex-lover of hers as well. Sometime later, Maggie is preparing the apartment for a nice dinner together because her class was canceled, but Buddy comes home with Sophia again. They lie to Sophia that Maggie is merely his pregnant au pair. She follows them to the elevator as they leave for dinner, and Maggie changes the story to claim that she was raped, and then that she was molested and then raped, before Buddy changes the story again. You weren't molested and you weren't raped. Your father was killed. Killed? In the war. What war? What war? 
Finally, she admits the truth that she's being paid to carry the child, and Buddy tries again to cut off the conversation and leave for dinner. We cut to the restaurant, and we are surprised to see that Maggie is sitting at the table with them, Yeah, and they argue over the potential barbaricness of this arrangement. Buddy distracts himself by chatting with the waiter, and we get a joke we'll hear again in Dumb and Dumber years later. What is the soup du jour? Soup of the day. That sounds good. I'll have that. Both women leave for the bathroom at the same time, and they split a cigarette while Maggie discusses her concern for the baby's health. I, I do like the afterthought of that joke. Once they walk away, Burt Reynolds looks up at the waiter and goes, don't you ever correct me again. That <laughs> like, also felt like an outtake. Yeah, or something like, that he improvised at the end. Sophia guesses that the baby is actually Buddy's, and she detects further that Maggie has true feelings for Buddy, and that despite all evidence, he's actually a decent guy. Maggie returns to the table alone to inform Buddy that Sophia has left for the night. She asks how Buddy intends to explain her absence to their future child, and she points out problems with his first couple answers. I know. I'll tell him she died. Maggie? Where are you going? Out. Where are you going with my child? I'm going to French class with our child. We have a contract. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Back at the apartment later, he wants to apologize to her, and he finds a note that reads, I am leaving and taking the child with me. Don't try to follow. I'm sorry this had to happen. Maggie. It's like, I'm taking the child with me. Like, were you just going to leave an yeah. undeveloped <laughs> fetus on the counter table and just walk away? But also, he knows where you live. We cut back to the basketball court with Billingsley as Kurt's kid. It seems obvious even to the kid that Buddy has feelings for Maggie, and he suggests they get married. We see Buddy running across the city to where Maggie teaches music, despite her request for him not to follow. We get a quick montage of the little moments they've had together. We cut to Maggie and Buddy's a apartment. A little montage. <laughs> yeah, it goes on for a while. Way it's basically every scene that we've seen of the two of them. We cut to Maggie and Buddy's apartment, telling Celia that she's going to sneak into the office at the garden and tear up the contract, but Celia suggests that she just admit her feelings to him. And wouldn't your lawyer have a copy of the contract? Right. Well, the point is that she doesn't want him to have a copy that he can uh, take her to court with. I do love it. Or at least I did. I have this dream that Buddy and I really do love each other. Is that the dumbest dream you've ever heard? Those are the ones that come true, the dumb ones. Larry is in Buddy's office, and Larry suggests admitting his love for her just as she walks in. Try it, one word at a time. I love... Maggie. Oh, give me a break. Maggie! As he follows her around the building, she tries to negotiate a shared custody situation of the child. She backs into an elevator and he chases her to the main floor of the garden and around a boxing ring. She asks why he needs this baby specifically so badly. Because I love it. You can't love anything. I love you. Five minutes ago when I smiled, it was the first time since you left. See, and I, how I thought that the scene was going to go is because she takes the elevator and it says to Arena. Yeah. And I thought he was going to be, when she was trying to find a way out, he's going to be on the, the, on the voiceover. And trying to talk and, to her. And following her with the lights, like following her with a oh, spotlight. Uh, like you can't get away from him. And, and, and I think that would have been better yeah. to, ha to have him say, I love you. You know. Over the speaker system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I like that better. 
I think there's a lot of ways that you could have made this movie better. Yeah. <laughs> she nearly collapses and he runs to hug her. On their way through the hospital to the delivery room, Buddy demands an instant marriage like the one at the end of Lethal Weapon 4, where Mel Gibson tries to marry Renee Russo right before the baby is born. Larry has managed to find a reverend that he calls Reverend Williams, and even though he is uncredited, and he doesn't show up uncredited on the IMDb page, I'm certain that this is Bill Henderson, who by sheer coincidence is also in that scene from Lethal Weapon 4. He's the angry patient that Joe Pesci takes the urine sample yeah. from so that Mel Gibson can crush the cup and complete the Jewish wedding ceremony. Right. You know how long it took me to fill that goddamn thing all day! But I'm pretty sure he's playing the reverend here too. So he's in two scenes where people get married in hospital hallways at the last <laughs> second before the baby is born. But the scenes are so surprisingly similar that I watched them back to back today. And here's, here's paternity. So what do you say, you wanna get married? Are you serious? Of course I'm serious. You want to get married? Yes, buddy, I'm married. Perfect! As soon as this is all over. We can't wait that long. When? Now! Now? We're all here. Oh, no son of mine's going to be born fatherless. This is Reverend Williams. How are you? Fine. Well, let's get with it. Oh, do you have a ring? Oh, no, I forgot it. I got one. I got a ring. We need a maid of honor. That's me! Ah, ah do we, we are gathered here tonight. Skip all that. Get to the good stuff. Do you? Uh, buddy. Do you, buddy, take? Maggie. Do you, buddy, take? Oh, yeah. Where am I from that? <laughs> Do you help me out a little bit? Everything. But else is not a man and wife. Yes, of course I will. Well, That's what I'm here for. Oh. Hallelujah. Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah, And here's Lethal Weapon 4. I said I didn't want to get married, but I do want to get married. I want to be a wife before I'm a mother, and I lied. I just uh, okay. lied, and I, I know you don't want to. Okay. He said, okay. Will you marry me? Oh, yes. Go get a minister. Now? Yeah, right now, because we're getting married. Oh, God, here comes uh, another. What do you need? License, blood test. We no, 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 wait, no. I just want to hear the words with the minister before the baby comes. Honey, I it's think... It's coming I think, now. I think, I think we... Oh. Hey, this, is, this is Rabbi Gelb. A uh, rabbi? You said anything. Uh, no, 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 he'll do. Uh, okay, Hi, rabbi. rabbi. Yeah. You're Jewish? Uh, uh, not necessarily. You got a license? Uh, no, we don't. Well, oh, Rabbi, please don't go down. We need you to marry She just needs to hear the words to make her feel better before the baby comes. You know how it is, I mean. Uh, what are your names? Uh, I'm Martin. And Lorna. Lorna. Martin yeah. and Lorna. Baruch, what am I doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> how do they go and do this? Uh, 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 Dearly beloved. That's it. Dear, dearly beloved, uh, we are dearly gathered here beloved. in the side oh. of this Marriage is a spiritual unit. Oh, Rabbi. Faster, faster. She's heading for the whole two stretch. People. All right, Martin, uh, will you take Lana to be your wife? Will you honor, love, etc., 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 until death do you part? I will. All right, Lana, will you take uh, Martin to be your mm. husband, uh, to be, etc., etc.? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Uh, the same thing. All right, mm. I pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss the bride. You uh, already did oh. that. Oh, let's go. No, no, wait, 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 wait. Oh, what, what, what? At the end, Maggie looks directly into camera for a freeze frame, and we cut to Buddy and Maggie now with three grown children years later jogging through Central Park as the credits roll. I, I think they're all girls. Yeah. Which is why I feel like there's three of them. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like he really wanted a son. So he gets three girls. Perfect. And that's paternity, everybody. <sighs> it's it's not bad, but it's a nothing movie. Yeah. It's There's nothing of substance here worth yeah. checking out. Yeah. Unless this was like a novel idea of the surrogate mother at the time, and it was just like, Oh, nobody's explored this with a romantic comedy yet, but there's there's really not much to it. They don't have enough chemistry, the two of them, and they don't even have enough scenes where they're actively in a relationship for it to matter that much. Yeah, I mean, I just don't even like the whole general concept that, you know, 
he's getting older and he needs a legacy, so he's going to just pay somebody to give him a legacy. I don't care about that. That's fine. I mean, people people do that, and it's it's a fair thing to do if that's what you care about in your life. But I think it's weird that the whole time he seems like a fairly flawless, nice guy, right up until suddenly he's telling her, oh, I'm just going to say that you're dead. And... Uh, I'm going to lie about what you're doing for me because I don't want this girl to freak out and leave me. And it's like, why suddenly in the last night of her pregnancy are you turning into an asshole when the yeah. whole time you've been a relatively decent guy <laughs> up to now? Well, I mean, yeah, he's been overbearing because, I mean, that's the nature, I guess, of their relationship and their contract. Yeah. Is that he's one, you know, he's providing he's providing all of her food you know like he's but there's similar jokes in that baby mama movie with tina yeah. fey and, yeah. and amy poehler where she's like really restrictive of what she's allowed to eat and how she needs to behave when she's pregnant with her kid but yeah i think obviously baby mama is a better written movie because <laughs> i mean of tina fey where would we it. be for baby mama without a movie like this yeah. paving the way yeah <laughs> she really has to thank burt reynolds <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah no, I think uh, I think it's fine, but it's not. It's a thumbs down. I don't think this is something that anybody needs to check out. I wouldn't be recommending it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a thumbs down from me. It, I, I, I got a couple of chuckles just because Burt Reynolds does have fun comedic timing and yeah. moments. Yeah, uh, like, and you know, like I said, like him gagging on the wine just felt so f- weird and out of just out of nowhere. It. It almost reminded me of something that his character would do for All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like take a sip of something and just start gagging on it because yeah. it's just, just goofing around and trying to have some fun. Because so many of the scenes aren't really fun. Well, what's interesting too, I have to admit that this movie was much better than I expected it to be, because I thought this was going to be like so fine level corny comedy type thing. This plays it a little bit more closer to reality, but. I really did appreciate the whole way through that Burt Reynolds is playing a polar opposite to the character we've seen in every Burt Reynolds appearance so far, Mm -hmm. which is normally he's like the alpha male super macho type. And this guy's the intellectual in touch with his feminine side type who's like loves babies and cries and, you know, he cares about people and it it just seems like, and people keep calling him cold over the course of the movie, Mm -hmm. which I feel like doesn't actually fit the character that they've established but i did appreciate that we get a glimpse of the well-roundedness of what he can portray because it, it never feels like a broken character that i don't believe yeah uh it's just a, a different a different turn from him because he's he's just a sweet thoughtful guy and he's like sitting around reading magazine articles about babies the whole time what are we thinking letterboxed uh so i have this one at number 84 okay i have it smack dab between Back Roads and Carbon Copy, which feels fitting for this movie. Okay. I also have this uh, near Carbon Copy, but I actually have Carbon Copy above it. Um, so Paternity is at 65 with Carbon Copy above it and Endless Love below it. Okay. Um, I have it at 123. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Out of 136. I loved this movie, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that puts it right under Honky Tonk Freeway and just above Only When I Laugh. I think Honky Tonk Freeway wins just because it has so many people, including three people from this movie, but <laughs> we'll get there in a second. Our director here was David Steinberg. He's a popular Canadian comedian with 130 guest appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, second only to Bob Hope. 
Steinberg was also a 12-time guest host, and we saw him last season playing a talk show host in Nothing Personal. I think it was supposed to be a fake-up of The Tonight Show. They wanted to imply that this was an episode of The Tonight Show that you were watching. This was the first directing credit for Steinberg, and he moved on to a mostly TV directing career for shows like Newhart, Designing Women, Seinfeld, Mad About You, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He also hosted 36 episodes of Inside Comedy, a comedian interview series. The writer here was Charlie Peters, also his first writing credit. Later, he wrote Blame It on Rio, Three Men and a Little Lady, My Father the Hero, and Krippendorf's Tribe. Oh, man, this is definitely a Three Men and a Little Lady type Very much movie. so, yeah. The music here was from David Shire. He previously scored The Conversation, The Taking of Pelham 123, The Hindenburg, All the President's Men, Norma Ray, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, and most recently, Only When I Laugh. Later, he composes Oh God, You Devil, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, Return to Oz, Short Circuit, and more recently, Fincher's Zodiac. The cinematographer here was Bobby Byrne. He previously DP'd Smokey and the Bandit 1, The End, Hooper, the villain, and chilly scenes of winter, and we saw his work last season lighting those lips, those eyes. Editor Don Camburn cut Easy Rider, Last Picture Show, The Hindenburg, The Other Side of Midnight, The End, Hooper, Time After Time, and so far on the show, Smokey and the Bandit 2, Willie and Phil, Excalibur, and The Cannonball Run. Later he cuts Romancing the Stone, Harry and the Hendersons, Twins, Ghostbusters 2, The Bodyguard, and Rookie of the Year. Burt Reynolds played Buddy Evans. He was Quint on Gunsmoke. He's Gator McCluskey in Gator. He's in Smokey and the Bandit, Sharky's Machine, Stroker Ace, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Boogie Nights. We've seen him so far in Rough Cut, Smokey and the Bandit 2, Cannibal Run, Deliverance, and White Lightning. He has a cameo in Smokey 3, and he appeared as himself in Archer episode The Man from Jupiter, which we quote a lot. Beverly D'Angelo played Maggie. She's best known as Ellen Griswold in the Vacation series. Before this, she was in Annie Hall, Every Which Way But Loose, and Hair. We've seen her so far as Patsy Cline and Coal Miner's Daughter, and we mentioned in that episode that she voiced Lurleen Lumpkin for the Simpsons Coal Miner Daughter parody episode. She also recently was Carmen Odessa Shelby in Honky Tonk Freeway. Norman Fell played Larry. He's best known as Stanley Roper from Three's Company and The Ropers. He also shows up in Transylvania 65000, The Graduate, and Chud 2, Bud the Chud. We saw him last as New York Mayor in On the Right Track. This was actually Fell's second time playing Burt Reynolds' Doctor after 1978's The End. Paul Dooley played Kurt. He was Dr. Gil Ganey in Altman's Health and Wimpy in Altman's Popeye the same year, 1980. He's Claude Elsinore in Strange Brew, Jim Baker in Sixteen Candles, Owen Cheese in Shakes the Clown, himself in The Player, a UFO abductee in Waiting for Guffman, and Cheryl's dad on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and the voice of Sarge in the Cars movies. Uh, and uh, for my Star Trek buddies out there, uh, he's an Abrantane, uh Garrick's father. Okay. And isn't he's time. also the dad in Breaking Away. Elizabeth Ashley played Sophia Thatcher. She has lots of soap opera appearances. She's Diane Freed in Todd Salon's Happiness. Most recently, she is Ruth Brenner on Russian Doll. That's like the adult family friend of the protagonist Natasha Leon character. And we saw her last as psychopathic killer Andrea Glasson in Gordon Willis's Windows. Lauren Hutton played Jenny Lofton. This was her second collaboration with Reynolds after appearing as Aggie Maybank in White Lightning's sequel Gator. They reunited again for Malone in 1987. She also reunited with Beverly D'Angelo in A Rat's Tale in 1997. We also saw her in Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which got a minisode this season. She was Michelle in American Gigolo last season. And we've also seen her as Charlotte Taylor Wilson in Zorro the Gay Blade. I get to say it that way every time. 
Juanita Moore played Celia. She was nominated for an Oscar for her part in Imitation of Life in 1959 and later appears in Deliver Us from Evil in 1975. Peter Billingsley played Tad. He's probably best known for his appearances in Christmas movies, specifically A Christmas Story, Elf, and more recently A Christmas Story, Christmas. He was a classmate of Jon Favreau's, which landed him roles in Elf and Iron Man, and his Iron Man character returned for Spider-Man Far From Home. We saw him last, also with Beverly D'Angelo, in Honky Tonk Freeway. Jacqueline Brooks played Aunt Ethel. She was Commissioner Brumford in The Naked Gun 2.5 and, and Alice in The Good Son. Mike Kellen played Tour Guide. He was Mel in Sleepaway Camp. He's Mr. Hayes in Midnight Express, and we've seen him so far as Leo in The Jazz Singer and in So Fine Somewhere. Elsa Raven played prenatal nurse. She's the Save the Clock Tower lady from Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. She passed away, I think, pretty recently. She's also Ida Strauss in Titanic, and on the show we've seen her so far in Fatso, American Pop, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Carol Locatell played Miss Verner. She's back with Reynolds as Mabel in Sharky's Machine later this season. Murphy Dunn played the singing telegram man. He's Murph from the Blues Brothers. We saw him last with Billingsley and D'Angelo in Honky Tonk Freeway, and before that in Last Married Couple in America. Tony Calum played Diane Casabello. We saw her last as Private Tina Gianelli in Private Benjamin. She's probably best known for playing Angie Bonpensiero on The Sopranos, but I know her best as the pregnant and then not pregnant woman from MacGyver episode Birthday, yeah. which also features the uncredited Bill Henderson from this film. McIntyre Dixon played Nature Walk Teacher. We've seen him so far in Altman Titles Health and Popeye, where he played Cole Oil. That's Olive Oil's father. Alfie Wise played Cabby. He appears with Reynolds in The Longest Yard, Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, Hot Stuff, Cannonball Run, and Stroker Ace. Tony Benedetto played the Butcher. His first credit was in Short Eyes. Last season, we saw him in Windows, Defiance, and The Exterminator. Earlier this season, he's been in Fort Apache, The Bronx, and Prince of the City. He's back later for Raw Deal, My Blue Heaven, again with Karabatsos, and he played Tony in nine episodes of Cheers. Dick Wyand played Mario. He was Roy in Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Ken McGee played Man in Oak Room Bar. He plays Carnival Rube in The Jerk. Duck Hunter Burt in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. We saw him last as the Scoutmaster in The Postman Always Rings Twice, and he reunites with Reynolds as Mansell in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Frank Bongiorno played News Vendor. We've seen him so far in Fame, First Deadly Sin, and Idolmaker. Jane Cecil played Woman at Music School. She was B. Williams on the prison board in Brubaker, and she's back later this season as a secretary in Taps. Jack Mattis played Edmund. He was a Mater D in Mickey and Maud, and his final credit was as a conga line dancer in The Backup Plan, featuring a credit from one Jessica Bayless. <laughs> Mindy Miller played a girl in a saloon in Westworld. She's also Tina in Body Double and a penguin crony in Batman Returns. And the last credit here is for Eileen Quinn, who plays a little girl at the park uncredited. This is her feature film debut if background roles count. She plays Annie in Annie next season. She also voices Dorothy Gale in the Toho animation Wizard of Oz that we brought up in our recent review of The Wiz. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Paternity. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Because this is our second episode of the month, nothing. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Dead and Buried, which IMDb describes like so. A suspense horror film set in a small coastal town where, after a series of gory murders committed by mobs of townspeople against visiting tourists, 
The corpses begin to come back to life. We leave you now with a trailer for Dead and Buried. This is the road to Potter's Bluff. Maybe you've been there. Clean, picturesque, full of old-fashioned friendliness. The kind of town everyone likes to visit. This is the road to Potter's Bluff. There is no road out. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. From the creators of Alien, Terror brought down to Earth, dead and buried. Is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have died? To get them to walk around? That guy, the one you, you came to see me about last week, the one that died after the car wreck. Yeah. I just saw him. Man, he's dead. It's the same guy. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. When you die, you expect to remain dead and buried. You had a very close call. Just lie still. I'm going to give you something. It's going to make you feel even better. When you die in Potter's Bluff, expect the unexpected. From the creators of Alien. Dead and buried. It will take your breath away. All of it. Dead and buried. Hi, I'm Dayton, the host of the Docking Base 77 podcast. We talk about everything from anthrax to the Muppets to West Side Story. All right, boys, buckle up, because we have hit the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. He slaughters all the Tuscan Raiders. The fact that she stays by his side, that, that tells me everything I need to know about these women that write letters to serial killers in prison. You know, it makes it made sense, you know. <laughs> Mopey, young, sad, always dumped Tim. That was the theme song, you know? <laughs> when you listened, Tim, did you have the volume on? Or? Oh. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel, but the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw Centerfolds. Um. <laughs> um, if Janko Fett is so awesome, he's hired to be cloned, why the hell isn't he doing the job? He's like... My Question. client's getting impatient. Well, what, you slack-ass mother? Why don't you do it? You know, you're just... <laughs> Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.